Okay, well, good morning. Anyone need a handout? Raise your hand and we'll be glad to get one to you. Okay, seem to be pretty well covered. Redemption accomplished and applied. Where have you heard that before? Um, this is our, let's see, we have two, two sessions after this. We have one on adoption, and then we're going to have one on sanctification and perseverance. So in two weeks going forward, we will cover uh, what we need to do with the redemption. This could, topic could go on forever, but um, we need to do some other things too. This morning we're going to look at justification and union with Christ. And we could take six weeks on each one of those, but we've got to cover them both, touch on them just in this one week. Basically, the bottom line is on justification is that God declares us not guilty. That's not to say that he makes us holy through that, that, through that justification, but he declares that that's what we are. Now, the Catholic Church, and I think some others possibly, teach that when you are justified, you are made holy, okay? You're, but that's not the case. This is a declaration from God. The application of redemption continues to unfold. In regeneration, God performs that divine operation in the soul whereby he births a new spiritual life in him. That's what we talked about last week. In his effectual call, God births new spiritual life in the in the. Uh, and repentant. In conversion, God grants the necessary gifts of repentance and faith by which we are able to, um, by which we are united to Christ and lay hold of the blessings of salvation. Again, we talked about conversion last week. In justification, God legally declares that we are no longer deemed guilty under divine law, but are forgiven and counted righteous in God's sight. He declares that, that we are justified, that we're not guilty, and we're going to open that up a little bit this morning. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The very righteousness of God. God doesn't, uh, God does not grade on the curve we have to have absolute, complete righteousness. And there's only one source that we can go to, and that's the Lord Jesus. I wish we had read the nature of of justification. Like we said, it's a, it's a legal declaration. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness, not an actual impartation of, or infusion of righteousness. It describes what God declares about the believer, not what he does to change the believer. Okay? That's just basically saying what, we, what we've already said. What, what are the grounds of justification? The grounds of justification are imputed righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. The only chance we have of, being, of, of receiving righteousness is to receive it from outside, okay? For it to be imputed to us. The ground of our just, justification is imputed righteousness. That has two parts to it. 
forgiveness of sins. Our sins are imputed to Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord um, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Okay? Our sins have to be judged somewhere. God says that the, the, the person who sins must, ju- must die. That, that doesn't change. That's God's judgment on sin. So we have two possibilities. Number one, we accept that penalty and are judged, and none of us want that, right? But God has provided an alternate. God has provided a Savior, the Lamb of God, to take our sins upon himself in our place. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then it's not it's it's great to have our sins forgiven, but that still doesn't give us the righteousness that God demands. That provision of, of righteousness comes when the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Our sins are imputed to Christ. His righteousness comes to us. Sum it up. Salvation is Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay? We must have his, his righteousness imputed to us there is no other choice. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he's talking about, in part. All right, what are the means of justification? Okay. The ground of justification is our righteousness, in fact, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. The means of justification, the means of justification are by faith alone. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, we can, we can understand that, uh, that the old ceremonial law, the Old Testament law, has been placed aside. And we, we don't practice that, do we? But what kind of works are we... Do we... Try to work something out again. What are the works that we try to do to make ourselves acceptable to God? You know, when you when you, when you really think about it, we do try to offer God works. Lord, I'm going to serve this person because I know it's going to put me in better standing with you, or whatever it might be. There are works that please God. Okay. We've been saved unto good works, but there's nothing that we can do in ourselves that will make us acceptable to God. We can please him through our good works, but we cannot make ourselves acceptable to him. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Um, We maintain that a man is justified ringing back. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself is a gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man may boast. Okay? Our salvation is a, a gift. It's not something that we have earned. So what is the result of justification? And that is we are made acceptable to God. Says he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what we need, and anything short of that is not going to be acceptable. We must be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And in Christ, that is what we have. When we talk about union with Christ in a few minutes, we'll see how we are placed into him. And then the justification we receive from Christ is a present justification. And I want to read a little thing to you to help us understand that one. You have on your last page, I think, on the sheet with your songs, there's a printout from Spurgeon. And I think that this to me, this is glorious and helps me understand just how much Christ has done for me. Okay, we talk about everyone who believes is justified. The believer in Christ receives a present justification. Faith does not produce this fruit before long, but now. So far as justification is the result of faith, it is given, to the, is given to the soul in the moment when he closes with Christ and accepts him as, as, as it's all in all. Are they who stand before the throne of God justified now? So are we. As truly, as clearly justified as they who walk, the white, who walk in white and sing melodious praises in celestial harps. I don't really think that's what heaven's like, but anyway. The, the thief upon the cross was justified the moment he turned his eye of faith to Jesus. And Paul was, Paul the aged, after years of service, was not more justified than the thief uh, with no service at all. Okay, here we go. Here's the meat of it. We are today, not when we get to heaven, we are today accepted in the beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted by the bar of God. You know, we have to, we have to know these facts and the, what's the balance of this little article because this is where Satan hits us. You know, he'll, man, you too, you, know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you, you're a sinner. Remember what you did when you were 12 years old? Or, Satan will tie us up in knots if we don't have the truth of God to come against him. There are some clusters of Eschol's vine which shall not be able to gather until we enter into heaven. But this is a bough which runs over the wall. This is not the corn of the land which we can never eat until we cross the Jordan. This is part, here we go, this is part of the manna in the wilderness, a portion for our daily uh, nutriment with which God supplies us 
in our journeying to and fro. Okay, this is a, the meat of it right here. We are now, even now, pardoned. Even now are our sins put away. Even now we stand in the sight of God accepted as though, as though he had never, we had never been guilty. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 There is not a sin in the book of God even now against one of his people. Who dares to lay anything to the charge? There is neither speck, nor spot, nor wrinkle, nor any such thing remaining upon any one believer in the matter of justification in the sight of the judge of all the earth. Let present privilege awaken us to present duty, and now while life lasts, it would spend and be spent for our sweet Lord Jesus. I'm going to keep that. That was out of uh, Spurgeon's morning and evening. And if you don't have one of those, if you don't have a copy of that, you need to skip a meal or something to be able to buy. If you have to, to buy it. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's available from Amazon for $10 if you get the NIV. Uh, and it's, uh, it's worth every penny. But here we have it. You know, if God has justified us, there is no one, Satan or, or fellow sinner or whatever, has the right to come to us and, and condemn us. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And I'm going to keep that article handy on my desk at home. And when Satan comes to me and wants to drag me through the mud of my past sins, I can pull that out and I can say, no, I'm completely forgiven. You remember in, um, in the garden where they had the, the cup. Jesus was taking that drink of the cup which represented our sins. And that cup, when he finished, was totally clean. There was not a drop left in that cup. And that represents our sin. He took it all. Past, present, and future. He took all of our sin on himself. And he took that gavel justified and not guilty for past, present, or future sins not guilty so the, that's just a thumbnail of of um, justification but that's all we really have time for this morning but there's no reason you can't take that and run with it and uh, when you get into the New Testament you will, you will see it all over the place so that was justification. Now we want to talk for a few minutes about our union with Christ. And this is one of the most important doctrines that we have as a believer. It's a quote there by Jerry Bridges. Again, if you don't have that Discipline of Grace book, you need to get one. They, I think they have some in the church that usually have them. Dan has talked through it a couple of times. It's a fabulous book. He says, we must keep in mind that our justification and union with Christ is based solely on the meritorious work of Christ 
and our union with him. That is, God sees us legally as so connected with Christ that what he did, we did. When he lived a life of perfect obedience, it is as though we had lived a life of perfect obedience. When he died on the cross to satisfy the just demands of God's law, it is just as if we had died on that cross. Christ stood in our place as our representative, both in his sinless life and in his sin-bearing death. This is what Paul referred to when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. To live, I've been crucified with Christ. To live by the gospel then means that we firmly grasp the fact that Christ's life and death are ours by virtue of our union with him. That's a very important doctrine for us to, to know and to understand and to practice. Jerry Bridges' book is great, and one even better is the Bible. And, and uh, I'd send you to Romans 6. It talks about our union with Christ, our death, burial, and resurrection with him. I'm usually dry throat this morning. Okay, page three. The concept of being united with Christ speaks of the most vital spiritual intimacy that one can imagine between the Lord and his people. In Romans, Paul, I forgot the period. In Romans, Paul <clears throat> says that we have died and have been buried and resurrected in him. John relates our new relationship to him as, 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 a, as close as the vine is to the branch, as in John the 15th. We are placed in Christ, Christ is placed in us. There's nothing that can happen to us that doesn't come through that, that union. We are protected, we are enriched, we are in, our union with Christ is confirmed 164 times in the Pauline epistles. Our union with Christ is the basis of our salvation, our justification, and our sanctification. Okay, there's no discipline any greater when it comes to our Christian living, our Christian life. I can remember back some years ago when Dan was um, going to start preaching through Ephesians. The first sermon that he preached, he went through and picked out each time in Christ was either stated or implied. And all through that book, it was so important that we, that we grab that because that, that helps us to know how to apply that book. I, I challenge you to go through this afternoon. That'd be a good part of it. Go through the book of Ephesians and Circle every time you see in me, in Christ, or, or reference to that. And so Christ is a mediator of all the benefits of salvation. For God our Father has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1 3. Every spiritual blessing that we ever receive on this earth when we get to heaven, we've got through our, our relationship with Christ, being united with Christ. 
union with Christ is a matrix out of which all the other soteriological doctrines flow. It has been called the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is a unifying principle of all soteriology, spanning from eternity past to present. Excuse me. To present. Eternity past and eternity future. Okay, we'll see what we can find here on our union. First off, the Father's election is rooted in Christ. The Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that as He was called, as He called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So our election is rooted in Christ. I thought this was interesting. There has never been a time when Christ contemplated his elect apart from their vital union with Christ. Everything that we have, every thought that, that the Father has towards us, we have, we receive through Christ. He sees us as being in Christ. And when he sees us as being in Christ, he sees us as being holy and just. God reckoned the elect to be united with Christ throughout every act of the Son's accomplishment and redemption. If, if you were with us last year when we did the... Um, sorry, guys, I'm just not doing it and so on. Um, if you were with us last year um, on redemption accomplished, we saw how from eternity past, God worked through the church. God worked through his, his people and then through the church. And in each and every situation, Christ was, a, was there. He was the one who, who worked for our justification. God reckoned that the elect to be the elect to be united with him throughout every act of the son's accomplishment. Again Romans six will give you that. We are united to, in his perfect life of obedience. He fulfilled all righteousness. Those united with him are clothed in his righteousness. Galatians 3.27 tells us that we are clothed in his righteousness. And this union was also the ground in which our sin should, could be justified, could be, just, could be justly imputed to Christ. The Father counts the elect to have lived Christ's life because he counts Jesus to have lived our lives and thus punished him accordingly. 521, he knew he who knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So because of our union with Christ, the Father, when he put our punishment on Christ, the Father was able to be satisfied with us, with that punishment for us. And when Christ rose from the dead 
and we were united with him. And God accepted that and credited us with the forgiveness of sin and with every, every, uh, everything that Christ accomplished for us. His life is our life. His punishment, our punishment. His death, our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His righteousness, our righteousness. His ascension and glorification, our ascension and glorification. Even though his elect had not been born, so sure was the election that all the redemptive work that would flow from it all the redemptive work that would flow from it, that our Father spoke of it as being past tense and being completed. There's a, I don't know Greek, but there's a, supposed to be a, a tense in the Greek that um, conveys the idea of a future event that was so totally sure to come to pass that it was spoken of as being in the past. Maybe some of you Greek scholars can tell me what that is. It's a future event, but it's so sure that God speaks of it in the past. Okay. So they were talking about even though the elect had not been born, so sure was it that the elect and all the redeemed work that would flow from it that God spoke of it as being the thing of the past. So he was, we had been, we had been elect, we had been saved even before we were born and therefore God could speak of it as a past tense. Just as a plan and accomplishment of redemption occurred in Christ, so does the application of redemption. Paul describes a believer's regeneration when he says, made alive together with Christ, and then the fact that we were created in Christ. The impartation of new spiritual life issues immediately, the impartation of new spiritual life issues immediately in repentant faith, the instrument by which one subjectively appropriates all the spiritual blessings planned by the Father and purchased by the Son. By the Son. Because of our union with Christ, this is kind of a recap of some of the things we talked about. We lay hold of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness, all that he accomplished, is imputed to us. It justifies the sinner. Romans 8.1 He is adopted into the family of God. And that's going to be our topic for next week and I think it's a, it's a fabulous uh, benefit or blessing to open up the adoption in the family of God. Someone said that he takes us out of the courtroom where we were being charged and moves us into the family room as part of his family. The believer is sanctified in him for holiness and service. The union of 
Christ is also the source of the believer's progressive sanctification and perseverance. It doesn't stop when we're, when we're born again. It's, it's just beginning. To, and, and, and as we walk through a process of sanctification, um, Christ is there. And our union with Christ is there. Christ is called our sanctification because it flows from him. We can bring forth the fruit of righteousness only as we are connected to the vine. Some of the benefit, benefits of being united. We are members of the body. Members of the body can grow to maturity only as they receive communion, communication of life from the head. Every day that we walk on this earth, we're totally dependent on that union that we have with Christ. And we should live in accordance with it. Only on the basis of this union can true believers persevere to the end. You know, sometimes people ask, oh boy, I'm not sure I can hold on. Can I get to the end? And we say, well, Christ will get you there. It's because of our union with him that he will do that. He will be there. He'll be our stay. While we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. Romans 8, 38-39. If you ever suffer with the, um, the thought of, of losing your salvation or God holding on to you, those verses in the latter part of Romans 8 are priceless. Then union with Christ is the basis of our union that believers will be raised from the dead. Because we're united with him in his resurrection, we know that we will be raised from the dead. Thank you. First one this morning. If we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Six, five. Now this quote from Spurgeon says, as many as are chosen, as many as Christ has redeemed, as many as the Spirit has called, as many as believe in Jesus shall safely cross the dividing sea. That's great. Okay, let's think, talk for a few minutes about the nature of the union. What does it mean exactly that believers are united to Christ? Scripture answers by illustrating the intimacy of his union with a number of different metaphors. First off, he says that believers' union with Christ is like a building in its foundation. Paul speaks of the church as God's household, a spiritual building laid on the foundation of a divine revelation communicated by the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone of that foundation is Christ himself. In him, the whole structure is being joined, is being joined together, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So that's one way we can visualize our union with Christ. He's the foundation. The uh, cornerstone. We don't use cornerstones much anymore. It used to be before they had all these 
engineering gadgets, there's a very important that that cornerstone be laid perfectly because everything else would be built on it. Every time a brick is put into that building, if, if you use this illustration, it's, it's, it's a, a new believer, someone who's um, come to know the Lord, and they are being put together into a new building, a new union with fellow believers. Okay, we also know that the illustration of a vine and a branch. And just as a branch depends on the vine for life, strength, and substance, so also does the believer depend upon depend on the union with Christ for all spiritual nourishment and growth. That's that's to me that's the greatest illustration that we have of our union with Him, and it's, it's worthwhile to spend some time meditating on that, and um, and more clearly understand what God's trying to teach you. Then there's a metaphor of husband and wife in marriage. The church is often pictured as Christ's bride. And Christ is the husband or the head of the church. He also gives an illustration in Ephesians of the union of the head and the body, the relationship between the head and the body. The church is often pictured as Christ's bride, and Christ is the husband and head of the church. And then, union of the head and the body, Christ is the head of the church. I just said that, excuse me. How about, what are the implications of our union with Christ? So since the Son is united to the Father and to the Spirit, believers by their participation in Christ are also made one with God the Father and God the Spirit. Okay, so we, that's something of truth I think we will well understand, but those who are one with Christ are also one with everyone else who is one with Christ. Now that we need to, to ponder. Because of our union with Christ, we have a union with one another. And our commitment to one another needs to be to represent that commitment to Christ. Every spiritual benefit received in salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Every benefit that we have comes only through Him. Um, if we are to have an interest in Christ's blessings, we must have an interest in His person. The gifts are wrapped up only in the giver. All too often we anticipate in getting, being, having the Lord's blessing without understanding where that blessing is really coming from. That it's coming from the Son and that it's coming to those who are united with Him. Now there are blessings that He gives to everybody in the world. Sunshine, a job, whatever it is. But to really have that communion 
Christ. We must have that if we're going to have the I'm sorry, if we're going to have the blessings that flow from the from a from a union with Christ, we've got to have that union. It's got to be strong. We've got to understand what it is, and we've got to stand stand with it. Um, I'm sorry, guys. This is just not my day, <laughs> and. Um, We'll finish up here, but I can't go on any longer. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you now that um, that you love us. We thank you that you gave your only Son to be sacrificed for us. But I don't know if I would have done that especially when it was for someone who hated me, hated my son. But you did it. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that you would withdraw us to yourself, help us to understand what Christ has done, help us to understand what Christ wants to do in our lives today. And then give us the grace to respond properly to it. Father, we thank you now for your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.